Today's episode of Behind the Beverage is brought to you by BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. By combining your restaurant's inventory and ordering data with beautifully designed, easy-to-use software, BevSpot can help you run a more efficient, more profitable business. Check them out today at BevSpot.com and schedule a consultation with one of their specialists to see how BevSpot can help you. That's BevSpot.com, B-E-V-S-P-O-T.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Beverage, where every other week we present you with the interesting histories and backstories of just about everything in the world of spirits, wine, beer, and beyond. I'm your host, Trevor Bernacci, and this week we're breaking down the botanicals and taking a look at the history of gin, the diverse and flavorful spirit that's the backbone of more classic cocktails than anything else in the world. I've got a fresh martini by my side, so that means it's time to go behind the beverage. All right, all right, so how did we get here today with gin? Well, before we go too deep, we first have to understand what gin actually is. So technically, it's any alcoholic spirit that gets its primary flavoring from juniper berries. And because of that, gin is one of the broadest categories of spirit that contains styles of many different origins, ingredients, and flavor profiles. But the one thing that remains true for all gin is the juniper berry. Now, while it might not have been the origin of gin, juniper berries have been combined with alcohol going as far back as the year 70 AD. Yeah, you heard that right, 70. We're pushing almost 2,000 years of juniper berries flavoring alcohol. Now, at that time, the Greek physician Pedanius Dioscorides wrote a five-volume encyclopedia about herbal medicines. It's in these volumes he outlined the use of juniper steeped in wine to help fight off chest congestion. It's definitely a treatment I wouldn't mind having from time to time. Now, for the following centuries, juniper-infused tonics and elixirs were used to fight off many different ailments. Well, some of these worked, but truthfully, most of them didn't. Actually, during the years that the plague was ravaging most of Europe, many Europeans mistakenly believed that juniper-based elixirs and juniper berries themselves would ward off the plague. It was even common for some to wear masks filled with juniper berries designed to keep the deadly pathogens from getting into their systems. Jumping ahead a bit to the 1500s, the art of distillation migrated out of Italy into the world's wine-growing regions and then across the rest of Europe. This spread of distillation is what eventually led us to the creation of gin. And once distillation reached the Dutch in the Netherlands, we were one huge step closer to the gin we know of today. The original method of distilling was pretty crude and often produced harsh, lower-alcohol spirits. This is why so many flavorings, such as juniper, were used to soften the blow from some of these more medicinal drinks. The Dutch are often one of those credited with refining the distillation process by adding a second distillation to help remove more of the impurities of the alcohol that was being created at the time. In 1572, we finally see the introduction of what would later become gin. Professor Silvius de Bouve is the man often credited with creating what today we would call Jennifer, the precursor to modern-day gin. Now, de Bouvet was a chemist, alchemist, scholar, and a founding professor of the Netherlands' oldest college, Leiden University, so classic overachiever even back in his day. Now, for his recipe, he combined juniper oils and wine to make a medicinal elixir that was used as a stimulant, diuretic, and as a treatment for lumbago, which is essentially lower back pain. 
1575, the popularity of Jennifer had spread, and this is when we see the first documented date that the Bolsius family set up their distillery in Amsterdam. Fleeing persecution in Antwerp, Belgium for being Protestants, the family set up shop in Amsterdam and quickly changed their name to the more Dutch, Bolts, a name that probably rings a bell for you gin drinkers out there. In fact, Bowles goes beyond just gin. With an established date in 1575, they're the oldest brand of distilled spirits in the world. They've been at it for over 440 years. I would like to think at this point they've got most things perfected. Now, not long after that, British troops were sent to Antwerp to help the Dutch fight the Spanish during the Eighty Years' War. While they were there, the Brits took an instant shining to Jennifer and used to drink the spirit before going into battle because it was said to have calming properties. This is where many people think we get the term Dutch courage, a phrase meaning strength or confidence gained from drinking alcohol. When these soldiers eventually returned to England in the early 17th century, they wanted to recreate this drink that had pumped them up and got them ready for battle. Truth of the matter is, after drinking so much of the stuff, it's more likely they needed it in their day-to-day at this point. As a result of people trying to get the recipes just right, gin came around in several different forms in these early days. Near the end of the 17th century, England was in a period of time called the Glorious Revolution that permanently realigned power within the British Constitution. This was the start of Parliament having checks and balances over the monarchy, and it was all headed up by a Dutch man named William III, better known as William of Orange. Dutch? Orange? Orange? Dutch. Now, William was basically a co-ruler with his wife, Queen Mary II, and under their rule, gin became wildly popular, specifically in very crude, less-than-perfect forms. William III basically opened up the law for home distillation in order to promote the creation of English spirits. Because of this, pretty much anybody in England could distill their own gin by nailing a note to their front door that said they were doing it. All they had to do was wait 10 days minimum by law for the distillation to be completed. In fact, it was around this era in 1714 that we see the first known recorded use of the word gin. Author Bernard Mandeville wrote in his book, The Fable of Bees or Private Vice's Public Benefits, quote, The infamous liquor, the name of which derived from juniper berries in Dutch, is now, by frequent use, from a word of middling length, shrunk into a monosyllable, intoxicating gin, end quote. The best result of all this change in drinking styles was there was now a market for lesser quality grains that were deemed unsuitable for brewing beer, keeping more farmers employed and lucrative. Soon after these laws went in place, thousands of gin shops popped up throughout the country, and England drove headlong into what is called the gin craze. Sounds like a great time to me, but the truth of the matter is actually much scarier. Since gin was relatively inexpensive in comparison to other drinks of the time, gin quickly became the drink of the poor and lower classes. At the time, there were about 15,000 drinking establishments in London alone, and over half of those specialized in gin. These rot-gut gins were being blamed for lots of London's social problems at the time, including vagrancy, public drunkenness, insanity, and even the rising death toll. While there's minimal hard evidence to actually prove this, the timing is tied pretty closely to the onset of the gin craze. At the same time, beer continued to keep up its popularity as a healthy beverage because it was much safer to drink than water, and since so much gin was essentially being made in back alleys and bathtubs, much more on the level. The negative reputation that gin received in these days still pops up in the English language from time to time, too. We still use the terms gin joints to describe seedier dive bars, and gin-soaked is still a phrase some people use to talk about alcoholics and heavy drinkers. During the height of the gin craze, Parliament passed the Gin Act. Now, this was an attempt to make gin more expensive and act as a deterrent for people who were buying lots of it, or even those running gin shops. 
Unfortunately, the law was almost impossible for the government to uphold at the time, and wide rioting broke out in protest. The most famous depiction of the differences between the gin drinker and the beer drinker at the time can be seen in artist William Hogarth's 1751 piece, Beer Street and Gin Lane. Now, this is one of my favorite works of all time, and it's an engraving that's set in two parts. One half shows Beer Street, where by all accounts the people are well-to-do, buttoned down, and calmly enjoying tumblers of their favorite beers. The street around them is clean and orderly, and nothing insidious is shown existing for these folks. On the other hand, Gin Lane couldn't be more different. This crowd of people is raucous, loud, fighting, and clearly drunk. It goes well beyond just that, though, to make a statement of how the public felt about gin drinkers at the time. This side of the work shows people going crazy to the point of a woman even dropping her baby from a flight of steps due to being so crazed by the drink. There was almost 11 millions of gallon per year of gin being produced within the city limits of London during these years. Now, based on population numbers at the time, this equated to almost 14 gallons of gin per year for each adult male. That is absolutely mind-boggling. The same year that William Hogarth's social commentary piece came out, Parliament rehashed the Gin Act, and this time it did a better job of sticking the landing. Now producers could only sell gin to licensed retailers, which had been put under local control to help enforce these new laws. Well, for the next 80 years or so, Londoners and gin drinkers were enjoying a pot-still-style gin. This meant it was being produced in a similar way to the whiskeys of the time and took on a much sweeter note than what we'd be used to today. By the time 1832 came around, the invention of the column still had arrived. This new method made distilling neutral grain spirits more practical and harbored the creation of the now ubiquitous London dry style of gin in the latter half of the 19th century. The London dry style of gin is generally distilled with the addition of citrus, like lemon or orange zest, and then combined with a variety of herbs and spices like anise, angelica root, cinnamon, coriander, and many, many more. In the British colonies, gin was used to mask the bitter flavor of quinine. During these days, consuming quinine was the only effective way to prevent getting malaria. The quinine was dissolved into carbonated water and became what is now known as tonic water. And that's right, the modern gin and tonic originated simply because people didn't like the taste of their medicine. And thank goodness for that. Now, soon after that, the temperance movement sprang up in the early 1830s and opened up many debates on the presence of alcohol in society. As these debates roared on and more reforms came into place, gin itself became more refined in its production process. The spirit actually became much more subtle and delicate, closer to how we enjoy it today. Because of this, gin finally began its rise into high society and really, really shined during the 1920s, which was the world's first cocktail age. And during that wonderful, brilliant time in American history known as Prohibition, gin seemingly reverted to its old days. It seemed like everyone and their mums was distilling bottom-of-the-barrel gin in their own homes, often in bathtubs. And this is where the phrase bathtub gin actually comes from, and it's usually used to describe any homemade spirit that is of much lesser quality. In the years since Prohibition was lifted, the world has seen a resurgence of gin-based cocktails, and it's morphed itself into a multi-billion dollar industry around the world. In fact, so many of our favorite drinks wouldn't have been invented if it weren't for gin. The martini... Gin and Tonic, Last Word, Negroni, French 75, I could literally go on for hours like this. And without the invention of Jennifer by the Dutch and the centuries of refinement by the Brits and other nations, the world could have been a very different place. Now the world as we know it today is in a pretty tumultuous place and there's a lot that we can agree on that needs to change. And sometimes change is hard and scary to tackle when it's so much easier just to go along with the status quo. 
Who knows, though? Maybe all we've needed this whole time to shape things up was just a little touch of Dutch courage. And that's how we got to where we are today with gin. So much there I didn't know, even as a gin drinker, I had learned so much researching this episode. Now, before we head out for the week, let's jump into our section called Pro Tips and Fun Facts. So, pro tip number one for gin. Keep an open mind. Don't give up on gin just yet. You might say that you don't like gin or that it just doesn't agree with you, and that might be true for the one label of gin that you tried, but there are so many styles that taste so different from one another. Even as a gin drinker myself, I know there are types of gin that I don't like, but I didn't write off the entire category because of that. Essentially, the only thing that makes gin gin is the use of juniper berries. After that, there's very little limit to the hundreds of botanicals a producer can use. It's important that you find the flavors in gin that you don't like, and then shop around for something that you can enjoy. I'd hate to see you completely shut out one of the most versatile spirits out there just because of one bad gin and tonic. Pro tip number two. A martini is always made with gin. If you're going out to order a drink and you say you want a martini, you're actually ordering gin. It's often lost that martinis aren't really a category of cocktail, but rather a specific cocktail recipe. Now, most bartenders worth their weight will ask you, but if you don't specify that you're looking for a vodka martini, which honestly is just three ounces of chilled vodka, you could end up with a shock when you go to take that first sip. Alright, fun fact number one about gin. London dry gin isn't really made in London anymore. Although the style originated there, keeping up with the growing need for gin made it hard for most distilleries to stay within the limits of the city. Today, only a small handful of companies still create gin within the city. Most notably are the distilleries of Beefeater and City of London Gin, one of my personal favorites. Fun fact number two. One would think that because of the country's ties to the drink, that England would consume the most gin in the world. Strangely, though, that isn't true because that distinction goes to the Philippines? That's right. With global sales of gin topping around 60 million cases worldwide, this country drinks over 22 million cases of its local Ginebra San Miguel every year. And even though this particular gin makes up 43% of the global market, most of us outside the Philippines have never even heard of it. And on that note, we've reached the end of today's episode. As always, thank you so much for joining us and for your support. We'll be coming at you with a brand new episode in just a couple of short weeks. Don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you can always get updated on our latest episodes. In the meantime, keep those glasses full, have a great week, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Behind the Beverage. Behind the Beverage is brought to you exclusively by BevSpot. Visit them today at BevSpot.com to find out how their software can help you run a more efficient, more profitable restaurant. BevSpot, empowering the global food and beverage industry with technology. The Behind the Beverage theme song is written and performed by Ila Moana. Check them out anywhere you stream music, Ila Moana at Spotify, Pandora, or iTunes.